You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The mall was entirely devoted to the consumer desires of bots. At least part of that desire was for cultural enrichment. After wandering into a skylit atrium, Paladin found herself paying a fraction of a credit to walk through a museum exhibit devoted to the history of robot culture in Richmond. Paladin paused before a display about the system of indenture. It was a set of video files and concatenated documents. A data-tagged timeline showed the emergence of robot kinetic intelligence in the 2050s, followed by early meetings of the International Property Coalition. Under IPC law, companies could offset the cost of building robots by retaining ownership for up to 10 years. She scanned a legal summary that outlined how a series of court cases established human rights for artificial beings with human level or greater intelligence. Once bots gained human rights, a wave of legislation swept through many governments and economic coalitions that later became known as the Human Rights Indenture Laws. They established the rights of indentured robots and, after a decade of court battles, established the rights of humans to become indentured too. After all, if human equivalent beings could be indentured, why not humans themselves? In the free trade zone, however, there were no laws that allowed humans to be born indentured like robots. Annalee Newitz is the creator of the science website io9, and she was the editor-in-chief of the popular tech site Gizmodo. She was the editor of She's Such a Geek, Women Write About Science, Technology, and Other Geeky Stuff, and Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. She's written for Wired, Popular Science, and The Washington Post. Her new book is a novel. It's called Autonomous. Thank you for joining me, Annalie. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is such an amazing book. It does all the things that a great science fiction novel should do. It is a rock and action-packed story. It is also contains great speculation about what it means to be human, what how humans actually think, what how robots might think. It also has a wonderful emotional arc, and that um, part of that emotional arc is the robot's journey. This is a wonderful idea. How did you conceive of the idea of autonomous, <laughs> and, and what might come up? What, what interested you about that? So this book was a long time in the making, and it kind of came out of my experiences visiting a lot of labs as a science journalist. And one of the things that happens when you uh, do a lot of science journalism like I have, you interview scientists, and you find out a lot of things about the process of doing science, the process of making technology that aren't really relevant to the articles you're writing. You know, you, you kind of you learn about this, the discoveries and the amazing machines that are being built, but then scientists will tell you uh, what motivated them in their childhood to become scientists or tell you about weird jobs they had that were, you know, kind of precursors to being scientists. <laughs> and also, a lot of that information is very emotional because people don't just do science to make money. You know, a lot of the time people are doing it because they really believe in making the world better, they want to um, improve people's lives, they want to make things more efficient. Uh, and again, for humans, you know, it's not 
it's very rare that you meet a scientist who is only in it for the atoms and the bits. You know, they're they're really um, passionate, and I never really put that stuff into my uh, into my journalism. It usually just doesn't fit. And sometimes the information you get might get a scientist in trouble, or it might make them um, look odd in the eyes of their colleagues. So. I kind of just stored up all these human stories about the process of doing science and the process of of building technology and smooshed them together and they went through, you know, whatever blender it is in the unconscious that you have that <laughs> kind of creates fiction. Um, and it came out here and I think that there is, you know, as you said, there's a very strong emotional component to the story and I think that's partly because that's the kind of thing that I feel like doesn't really believe in, doesn't really belong in science journalism. and. Uh, you know, at least the kind that I write. And so I got to just kind of put it all in here. Well, in a sense, then, this work of science fiction itself becomes science journalism, just a means. Uh, it just needs a different body to convey the viral meme. <laughs> You're running I mean, in plan. a way, it's, I, I mean, I would never want to claim that this was journalism, but it's definitely a different approach to talking about a lot of the same issues. Mm -hmm. And you know, when I write about AI, of course, I'm writing about people in, in science journalism. I'm writing about the people who are working on machine learning algorithms and how those algorithms work. But in Autonomous, I was able to sh take you inside the mind of an artificial intelligence and show what it would feel like to be a robot with an artificial mind and how, how other people would respond to that and what it would feel like to be in a world where you're treated like property from the day that you're born, and that's legal. And so I, I felt like it was, yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to, to talk about these scientific issues from a really different perspective, a more personal perspective. I was really glad to see your book was set in 2144 and that the things hadn't changed all that much because so often science fiction is set, you know, they want to get it the day after tomorrow to make it feel real. But unfortunately, the day after tomorrow is usually pretty much like today and there's yeah. not a lot of science. <laughs> Other than the science fiction that we're living, we're currently in the midst of a very dark Philip K. Tick novel and hopefully it'll have a happy ending. But because the novel is set so far in the future, I, I just wanted to, to ask you about that kind of timing. That in a sense, I think these days, dating a science fiction novel is somewhat dangerous, especially since uh, we're now past the, the Blade Runner uh, inception point. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a temptation to kind of go the route of the amazing 1980s show Max Headroom, where they just say, five minutes into the future, <laughs> by which we mean some vague tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, because that's clearly a lot further than five minutes. Um, and uh, I love that show. So they uh, so what I wanted to do was um, pick a time that felt like it was far enough away from the present, but and that it would be different. I mean, that there are different laws and there's different kinds of economic relationships and new technologies. But at the same time, if you think about it, it's only about five or six generations in the future. Mm -hmm. And so there are going to be a lot of things that are the same. And when I was planning it, I very consciously was thinking about, okay, well, what do I know about my great grandmother and, and her mother and their lives? And what were people doing in the late 19th century, which is roughly the equivalent amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what is our experience of that time? And I realized there's a lot of stuff in common. People were riding on trains. People were taking photographs. 
people were reading the New York Times. There are a lot of continuities between those two periods. And of course, there's a lot of discontinuities. But it doesn't, the late 19th century doesn't feel so unfamiliar that it's like another world. It's mm-hmm. just a, a slightly different version of what we're living now. So that was, when I was thinking of 2144, that was what I was thinking is it's a sort of a step away from us. And it gives us enough, it gives me, give, gave me enough kind of free play to invent kind of weird stuff and pretend that AI could have evolved in that period of time, which I absolutely don't think in real life it could, um, you know, short of some kind of miracle and um, scientific miracle. Uh, and uh, I think um, you know but at the same time I wanted it to feel familiar too I wanted I mean and all science fiction is really about the present anyway so you know it's gonna feel like today because I'm I'm not a wizard I can't predict what's really gonna happen in the future you know uh, it seems to me it was this is as I encountered the uh idea in this book of indentured servitude. I've encountered it once before in uh, Ready Player One. That was a little part of the plot. And I think that this is a really interesting and extremely terrifying idea that you kind of stealth in under under our radar just by calling it indentured indentured, and as opposed to slavery, although you do mention the word slavery, I think, once in here somewhere. So talk about why you think that indentured servitude is a, an operable economic model after slavery. So basically the reason why it's called indentured servitude is because this kind of regulatory agency, the International Property Coalition, that sort of replaced the UN in my future Uh, So human rights have kind of been replaced with property rights. So this group, I mean, it is slavery. Like, this is a book about slavery. Mm -hmm. And if you had an international regulatory agency that was trying to, uh, you know, foster uh, a global economy based on slavery, they're not going to call it slavery. They're going to call it indentured servitude because they want to make it seem consensual. They want to make it seem like a human right. And in fact, they create these laws that are called the human rights indenture laws. And it's a way of trying to sell slavery to people, you know, under a kind of a softer name. And we, we meet many characters in this novel who've been indentured and refer to it as being slaved. And we also know that just from our own experiences with um, international regulatory agencies in our world, that just because there are laws that are supposed to make something slightly humane doesn't mean that those laws are followed. It doesn't mean that regulations are paid attention to. And so pretty much every example of of indenture that we see in this novel is broken. You know, people are kept enslaved for their whole lives. They have no choice about it. Um, if you're born poor, you really don't have a choice. You have to indenture yourself to a corporation or to some other entity. And so it's, I think it's very plausible to imagine that the global economy might depend on slavery again. It's not that long ago that it did. And it's certainly the kind of logical extension of the way that we treat property rights now. And, you know, like I said, it would be it's cast as a choice. You know, you can choose to indenture yourself, unless you're a robot, in which case, you know, it makes sense within this regulatory scheme that robots should have to be indentured because someone paid to make them. Mm-hmm. And so they have to pay, they have to kind of work off the cost of that. So however they do it. So um, yeah, and Paladin, the main robot character, pretty much knows that he may not ever get out of indenture, but, you know, she might, so. 
I, I think that uh, it was so interesting to me that you chose a, a rob paladin as a main character, but there are other robot characters in this book too that who e get also great character arcs, and they come coming kind of late. So talk about creating this palette of robot and human characters and characters who share traits of both. That's an interesting challenge for a writer. You're not just divvying up uh, men, women, and bots. <laughs> um, men, women, non-binary, and bots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it was really fun, actually, to come up with what you're describing as sort of these gradations of um, characters who kind of share traits. Even if they're human, they might have certain bot-like experiences and vice versa. And one of the things I really wanted to play with was, because this is a book about autonomy and freedom, uh, sort of degrees of freedom and degrees of coercion and degrees of slavery and how people and robots experience them. And uh, we meet, you know, the main character, uh, one of the main characters is a pirate, uh, Jack, of course, her name is Jack, she's a pirate. And she is very concerned with property, but what she is interested in is intellectual property. And she's a drug pirate, and she's pirating drugs from wealthy corporations to give to the poor because she wants to help the poor with, with medicine. And she encounters, um, in her kind of travels in the book, she meets uh, a young man who has been indentured for his whole life. And it's supposed to not be legal that that can happen, that he could be born into indenture, but he is. And she has to learn about how there's this other form of property that is destroying people's lives. It's not just about intellectual property. There's also human property, chattel property. And part of her arc is having to understand that, you know, even though she's a super smart, radical activist in one area, she's completely clueless about this other part of people's lives. And she's never met a robot before either, really. She's, she's known robots, but she's never really met one. And she also meets this robot character who I really love. Her, oh. na um, her name is Med. Med Medea. Yeah, short for Medea. Uh, so Med comes from uh, a radical laboratory in Anchorage, the Cohen Lab. And the Cohens have decided to build and raise robots autonomously from birth. And so we get this nice parallel between um, the indentured uh, boy that Jack meets, whose name is 3Z, who is a human who was born indentured, the way robots usually are. And then he meets Med, and Med is a robot who was born autonomous, the way humans are supposed to be. And so their friendship becomes, to me, very interesting, because I love the fact that both of them kind of defy the expectations of the world that they're in um, and have had these 3Z has kind of had this robot experience, and Med has spent a lot of her life feeling kind of guilty because she's a robot who's never been indentured, and all the other robots she knows have had this really fundamental experience, and she doesn't can't really relate to it. And so then she finally meets this person who also has these weird aberrant experiences, which are probably not very aberrant, actually, because I think probably a lot of humans in this world are born enslaved. But um, so I loved doing that kind of challenging people's assumptions in this world, you know, having, setting up a character who expects things to be one way and then ha force them to meet people who, who are like, no, that's not how it is. You're completely clueless. Because <laughs> um, I think that's how real life is. You know, the longer you uh, are around and the more people you meet, the more you realize that the preconceptions you have based on what you're told are the laws and the norms of your culture. It turns out that those things are not 
the laws are not obeyed, the norms are not really normal, and in fact, everything you thought was true is totally bullshit. <laughs> now, uh, your future is based on the idea that everything is property. And this is a fascinating idea, and it has a, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of, uh, a large part of this book I would call economic science fiction. You, you science fictionize the dismal science. Mm -hmm. so. Dismal science fiction is my new favorite idea. <laughs> well, this, this book is extremely dismal in its uh, uh, economic outlook. So talk about how everything becomes property. And I think that's so fascinating. Well, I think it's really, again, I think science fiction is really about the present. Mm -hmm. And this is about what I see happening around me all the time, where everything has a monetary value attached to it. Anything can be sold, even if it's not supposed to be. And it's creating a lot of really dark scenarios, um, not just scenarios in medicine where suddenly a drug that's cheap becomes too expensive for anyone to afford and so literally kills them or when a kind of a medical insurance system stops working for people and they can't get care. But just the fact that um, we basically have, in a sense, traded human rights for property rights and that the way we define what it means to be human and what it means to be free is through what we're allowed to own and, and who we can own even. And, um, and when I say who we can own, I don't mean... Uh, literal slavery in every situation, although we do have tons of slavery going on in the world today. You know, there's ton, there's uh, lots of um, uh, examples of it uh, around the world. And most recently, there were several reports about um, Thai fishing boats with slaves on them who have been basically conscripted and have no way to leave the boat and are dying and having all kinds of health problems because they're trapped on these boats for years on end. And, and that's just one example. But I think that, um, you know, it's as we talk in the sort of tech world, as we have started talking about the possibility of a human equivalent artificial intelligence, and as we talk about automation, one of the big questions is who will own it? And it's interesting because part of this debate comes out of self-driving cars. And there's this question about, well, if we have self-driving cars, which are basically running a kind of AI or machine learning algorithm or set of algorithms, um, if they get into an accident, if, if, you're, if your self-driving car gets into an accident, who's at fault, right? So who owns it? Is it your fault because you're the owner of the car? Is it um, Tesla's fault because they built the car? And so lawyers are debating this now. And in California, we just had a, a new set of laws kind of drawn up about how we're going to regulate autonomous cars. And indeed, uh, the manufacturer is going to be held liable. So already we have an example of a very crude kind of AI, not at all human level, not at all conscious, which is owned by its manufacturer, right? But at the same time, people like um, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and a bunch of other pundits are arguing about, well, what about when we finally do have some kind of conscious AI, and what what will happen? You know, will it become a superintelligence that oppresses us? Who will own it? Who will regulate it? How will we stop it from destroying the world? Because they they seem to be sort of stuck in this kind of like Terminator <laughs> scenario. Um, and so I think it's interesting that as we think about possibly developing a new form of life, a form of artificial life, one of our big questions is who owns it. 
And that's what we see in this novel is how does that get worked out? Um, how do we sort of imagine um, new life? Well, the first thing that we wonder about this new form of life is who who gets to possess it, how it, how it can become property. And so I, you know, I, I think that that is really dark. I worry about that a lot. I feel like, you know, when uh, property becomes the way we define literally every object and relationship and person and living being in the world, that we are losing out on a significant set of experiences and possibilities. And we're foreclosing a lot of um, ways that we could become uh, a better civilization. So um, so there's a little bit of, of angst in there. <laughs> uh, I, it's fascinating because what, what you're saying, and I think I've never thought about this before, economic relationships are body snatching essentially community relationships family relationships employer employee relationships there are, it's just winding in it's like the body snatchers you wake up one night you went to bed somebody's husband or wife the next day you were maybe property of uh the people of your you employer for. yes well and i think one of the really literal ways this is happening is in social networks like facebook where you're very intimate relationships have now been commodified. So your actual (laughs) friendship network is something that can be bought and sold. And that is, you know, we something we have to think about. Do we want that? Like, is that what we, there's no question in my mind that there's something delightful and utopian about the idea of having a way to connect with people online and having social networks surfaced online, I think is, is wonderful. I, there's everyone, you know, probably has a story about, running into an old friend through Facebook or through wherever they're, you know, hanging out through Twitter and, you know, rekindling an old friendship. But if you have to have that happy experience through being commodified and through having that relationship quantified and sold and turned into something that you can sell ads against um, or worse, uh, is it worth it? Like, do we want that? You know, is the trade-off enough? And I don't, I don't think it really is. I think we're finding out that maybe we need to rethink this whole thing. Yeah, that deal with the uh, with the genie was is turning out to have some unanticipated uh, side effects. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I absolutely loved about this book, another thing I hadn't even thought about till this moment, was that in a sense there are no bad guys in it. There are people on the opposite sides of a question. Both of them have good arguments. They all and people and robots on opposite sides of the same argument. They all have good intentions. Uh, We like them all, and we find them in a clash. And I think that's an interesting approach for you as a writer to, like, avoid the the snidely whiplash trap. (laughs) Well, I also, I really admire um, kind of realistic fiction Mm -hmm. and naturalistic fiction. And so... Part of what I'm doing here is just trying to reflect, you know, how people really are. You know, there's it's rare to meet someone who's all good or all bad. There's a few examples. And there is there are a couple people in this book who are just like totally bad, like these pharmaceutical executives who just don't even care about about ruining people's lives or getting them addicted to expensive drugs. I think that's 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 naturalism. 
I mean, it is, and and we don't know. I mean, the, actually, it was funny because a friend of mine who's a um, financial journalist, you know, read the book, and and we kind of meet this character who runs Zaxi, which is the evil pharmaceutical corporation, and and he's like, well, wh- what's his motivation? Like, I really want to know his backstory, and I'm like, he's just a bad guy. And he's like, no, no, he's got, you know, he's obviously got all these other feelings and and thoughts, and so um, I was excited that he you know, wanted to kind of build out and humanize this character. And I could imagine, you know, a story that did that. But um, mostly I really did want the reader to be questioning, you know, what does it mean to be good? Um, what do we do in the service of our ethical values? You know, how far are we willing to go? Um, is it possible for people on either side of a of a um, of a crime, basically, because one character, Jack, is basically a criminal, and Paladin and Paladin's human partner, Elias, are basically on the side of the law. But we see why Jack's criminal activities are actually great, and why some of the things that Paladin and Elias do in the name of the law are questionable. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Shades of Grey are my favorite. You know, I just, I, I, not that I don't love a good story with a good guy and a bad guy, for sure. And, you know, a very early iteration of this book, definitely um, people were more clearly bad guys, actually. Like <laughs> the earlier, the sort of first draft, like everybody was kind of terrible. And then I was like, wait, but why do I want people to read a book about terrible people? <laughs> like They need to also have, they need to be redeemable. So uh, there's um, a, an amazing and absolutely unique emotional journey in this book, which is the journey of a character to experience emotions. I'm talking about Paladin. And the way you did this was wonderful. Uh, I There seems to be a lot of, as Paladin slowly uh, awakens in this book, and I think I guess that's one way to put it, uh, We it, all I could think about was that this shows us what insight this shows us into how humans think. And so as Paladin was learning to think about stuff, they say, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing too. I'm running that same subroutine. Oh my God, am I a robot? Maybe I am. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm very robot identified. And um, I was like, when I was a little kid and I first saw Star Wars, I was like, oh yeah, R2-D2 is totally who I am in this story. <laughs> and, you know, kind of short, nobody really understands me. <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly mechanical. So um, I did really, I, I think of Paladin's arc as kind of a coming of age story because yeah, exactly. Paladin has just come online basically, you know, a few months before the action starts. And um, as the book begins, um, you know, she goes from, uh, you know, development to deployment is how he puts it. And um, by the way, Paladin's gender is like up for grabs. Like you'll find out, (laughs) you know, Paladin robots don't all really care about gender. Most of them don't. And uh, it's really just humans who are hung up on pronouns. So Paladin goes by different pronouns in the book. And um, so Paladin is learning how to feel, but also learning uh, what it means to have relationships. And I think that's what's really important is that Paladin is learning about what it means to be, to have an emotional connection with another being, regardless of whether it's human or robot. And I think part of the arc of the whole book is trying to bring these characters together and show how when people get into relationships and forge alliances, they become better people. And that that's kind of how we come to uh, be more ethical beings is when is through love and through friendship and through striving together for a greater goal. 
and um, and I really uh, I hadn't intended for Paladin to have a romance, but it just happened. Like it just seemed the really? most natural thing in the world. <laughs> and I've had readers say to me that they kind of get to this moment where we know, and this is fairly early in the book; it's not a spoiler, but where we we realize that. Paladin uh, and Elias are kind of like getting a little intense about each other. And I've had people say like, whoa, I didn't think you were going to go there. And then you did. And I was like, yep, me neither. But, you know, it just happened. <laughs> oh, that must be why it feels so real. It, the the process as a reader, seeing the, the changes in the character, uh, interestingly enough, I suppose when we're talking about a robot character, it feels very organic the way the thoughts experience and I thought there's an amazing amazing part of this book one word makes a giant difference because all of a sudden at one point Paladin thinks of itself as she mm-hmm. for the first time and when I read that just knocked my socks off it was such an interesting turning point such an interesting concept and that's I think the virtues of this book in the midst of uh thrilling crime chase across a future America that seems manages to seem maybe about as bad as ours but <laughs> yeah it's, it's roughly like ours in a sense yeah uh, that you would explore all these uh, philosophical questions with emotional implications so it's interesting usually philosophy gets uh, uh, shut of emotions and here it's part and parcel of it yeah, and I mean, I think that's because some of the philosophical concepts I'm exploring have to do with with love and mm-hmm. have to do with what it means to have a self. And of course, you can't have a self unless you have an other. You know, you, you come to know yourself through knowing other people. And, you know, that's a very fundamental uh, discovery in psychology and uh, or a fundamental kind of precept in psychology. I don't know if you can call it a discovery and and in philosophy. And so... That's what we're seeing is Paladin's evolving sense of self through knowing others and through seeing herself or himself through the eyes of other people. And that's part of what that pronoun shift is, is that um, he starts seeing himself through the eyes of Elias and through other people's eyes and realizes, oh, my God, humans are just hung up on this gender thing. And, like, (laughs) if I'm going to have relationships with humans, I'm going to have to, like, figure out what my pronoun is. Whereas we we also see Paladin having great conversations with other robots who are saying, like, oh, give me a break, this gender thing. Why are humans always anthropomorphizing us and assuming that we have gender? Um, And so I love that, you know, that, that Paladin is sort of, getting one kind of input from humans and this other kind of input from robots and, you know, has to kind of navigate it and figure it out and, and sort of build her own identity out of that. Anthropomorphization. <laughs> Anthropomorphizing. Anthropomorphizing is a huge uh, theme in this book. And what's interesting to me is that as I was reading this book, you know, we anthropomorphize anthropomorphize ourselves. We anthropomorphize other humans to be like a little bit more like us. Yeah, I think, I mean, a big part of how we make it through the world is just by projecting ourselves onto everything, right? Like we want, you know, it's like, why do I, why do I have an emotional attachment to my teddy bear? I have a teddy bear from when I was a kid and mm-hmm. I still have it. And I would be sad if something happened to it. And it's like, it's just a pile of cotton. You know, it's not, it's not a person, but I've anthropomorphized it to the point where it has this kind of magical property. And so um, I think one of the things I really wanted to get at in this book is that is to give readers a chance to see kind of the other side of anthropomorphization because a typical 
A, a very typical story about a, a kind of newly born robot is what you see in um, Star Trek The Next Generation with the character Data, who mm-hmm. Data really wants to be kind of like a real boy. He's a bit of a Pinocchio. He studies humans. He wants to act more like humans. And there's all these episodes where Data is sort of like, hmm, that is an interesting human trait. Perhaps I will attempt to imitate it. And there's a little bit of that going on with Paladin. Um, but I also wanted to um, explore the other side of that and and give us the perspective of um, humans trying to understand robots and kind of getting it wrong in the same way that Data gets it wrong when he tries to be a person. You know, he, he often kind of ends up being more more like an android than ever before. And there's all these great moments uh, or moments that I enjoyed writing where, um, you know, a robot is behaving in in a way that seems human to all of the humans around him. And the humans are like, oh, well, of course, the robot is is doing this because, you know, it loves me or because the robot is actually this kind of creature. And in the robot's mind, something completely different is going (laughs) on. And, um, you know, I I love the idea of giving readers a chance to think about um, that kind of mistaken identity and how both both sides are mistaking the other. You know, the the robot is kind of misunderstanding humans. Humans are misunderstanding robots, and we're just kind of getting by with lots of projection. It's Jane Austen with robots. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe a little bit. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of that going on. You know, uh, it was fascinating your uh, speculation, and it's actually uh, again just. Uh, reflection of the present day of how the patent system has already destroyed and annihilated science in the current day and effectively 125 years or so into the future. Yeah, and I the patent system and the intellectual property system has only gotten more expansive in this future. And, you know, patent terms are much longer in this future. Um, and uh, it's even more difficult to build something new uh, using patented parts because uh, in in this future, um, you know, so many things have been patented that just the idea of trying to create a new medicine or create a new um, kind of really anything, a new device, um, you're opening yourself up to like incredible legal vulnerability. So you can really only be engaging in kind of scientific innovation under the umbrella of a very wealthy corporation that can protect you from those kinds of legal challenges and that can, you know, license afford to license all of those patented parts for you to incorporate into your drug or into your device. And that's why the character of Jack, who's one of our main characters, she starts out as a scientist and she just becomes completely disillusioned because she wants to make medicines to help people, but she realizes that in order to do it, she just has to basically do patents. You know, she just has to patent a zillion things. and It's a patent farming. Yeah, she calls it patent farming. And uh, they she jokes about or, or kind of snarkily talks about how she has an opportunity to work at a patent farm and she turns it down because she'd really rather get the medicine to people. And so she becomes a pirate to do that and to make that medicine available. And, you know, that choice is a a radical political choice that is in some ways incredibly great, but it also sets her up to be vulnerable in other ways, too. So she she kind of does something super heroic, but at the same time, now she's a criminal and she has to, you know, and she ends up kind of screwing up because she's leading a dangerous life. So... Um, so she has to make a trade-off. I, I like the uh, uh, 
use of uh, biological engineering and genetic engineering in this book. It's nice because it's all kind of wallpapered into the background. Uh, I think you do a great job of wallpapering into the background and then letting it grow out the way that these kind of technologies grow out. So talk about just uh, creating new technologies and trying to make them seem like they the way they exist in the real world. And for like hammers and nails, woodworking technology is huge in this world, but we don't think much about it. Yeah. I really wanted to have this be a biotech future. And a part of that was about imagining sustainable technologies and sustainable building materials. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about this future is that, um, you know, climate change has continued to do its work. And so sea level sea levels have risen. Um, there have been problems with famine. There's been uh, new areas of land that have been opened up for development in other parts of the world that are now basically uninhabitable. Uh, people are living in domed cities in in Vegas because it's just so incredibly hot. And so part of what I was doing was um, thinking about biotech that I've written about a lot as a science journalist and, you know, things like you know self-healing materials or you know, buildings that are made out of living materials or living tissues and membranes. Um, and partly I wanted to kind of, again, tweak people's expectations because there's aspects of this future that are very dark, like the fact that slavery is a cornerstone of the global economy um, or is openly admitted to be a cornerstone of the global economy. And um, at the same time, people are living incredibly sustainably. Like most power is solar, um, you know, uh, the building materials that we see being used are all recyclable and biodegradable. People use foam for roads, so it's just a biodegradable foam that lasts for a couple years and then you refoam the road. And it's not asphalt, it's not harming the environment. Um, so this is actually a kind of environmentally sustainable future. So elements of this world are um, actually better than ours. You know, they've actually, and the medicine is better too. It's just really expensive. And so people are in some ways living better than they do now, but at the same time, they've suffered these setbacks. So I think- Same as it ever was. <laughs> right, exactly. Just because technology progresses doesn't mean that we progress as a civilization. No, technology seems to move at its own rapid pace while uh, humans seem to move at a much slower pace. But that's what I liked. One of the things I, and again, and hadn't thought about it till now, I read this whole book. I enjoyed the hell out of the story, loved the world, and I didn't think of it now at all. The word that never came to my mind while reading this book was dystopia or dystopian or utopian. Good. <laughs> so I was very, in retrospect, I'm very happy about that. Yeah. A, the world is always a mixed bag. It is always a mixed bag. And one of the things that um, I love about um, William Gibson's work, and he's said a lot, you know, that people think his work is dystopian, but it's really just supposed to be kind of like today. Um, it's just a little bit of bad and a little bit of good put together. Um, I, I kind of stole that from him, I think, uh, because I really, I think what's fun about doing the thought experiment of science fiction is reflecting back to people some of the problems in the real world. Mm. And, you know, the problem with the real world, just like the problem with people, is that it's never all bad and it's never all good. And so you're never going to be able to convince everyone, like, things are terrible, let's change it, because there's always going to be a significant number of people who are like, what are you talking about? I love it like this. Like, let's just drill oil out of the ground forever. <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> it's not, I think that we're heading towards a, a new form of science fiction, which I would call topian science fiction. It's neither dystopian or utopian. It's just kind of about the way we live, uh, mixed-mastered through some wonderful uh, literary imagination. Yeah. <laughs> I've been calling this book Topian. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's basically, uh, yeah, I think it's just, um, you know, I think it's it's good to have that realistic perspective that, you know, you one person's utopia is another person's dystopia and that, you know, as bad as things get, in some ways it's also getting better. I, I think that for me... Uh, the character of 3Z was really fun, and I like that all the characters were fun. It was fun no matter who I was with. I was pleased to be there. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> and, and I think that's important in writing. But tell us a little bit about creating 3Z, who st has started his life as an indentured slave, born into slavery. Yeah, he's uh, in a situation where um, his parents, we, don't, we never know this for sure, but he sort of hints that what's happened is that his parents sell him to what's called an indenture school. And um, this is when he's a little kid. And we see other characters who, who deal with this too. And the idea is that the kids are kind of owned by the school, but the school is supposed to be training them so that they'll have job skills at the end. And so there's supposed to be this notion that, that they're actually being enriched. It's um, the DeVry of the future. <laughs> yeah, or prison of the future, really. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, for these kids, there is no difference. Um, and for a lot of people in prison, there is no difference. And I think that – so he – has this experience and he manages to, he's a real survivor. And one of the things that uh, I tried to do with all my characters is show how they've survived and how they've managed to cobble together a sense of self and a sense of hope despite being in these really horrific circumstances. And the way he's survived is by um, getting access to the public net, which is just kind of the futuristic internet and creating uh, a digital journal there on um, a very live journal-esque platform that's called Memeland. And he chronicles his experiences and he gains a network of friends across the world who follow his adventures. And it starts out, the journal starts out being called, um, I think it starts out being called like Schoolboy, and he changes it to Slave Boy once he realizes, once he gets old enough to realize what his situation is. And so that's kind of how he despite the fact that his contract gets sold to school after school, and each moment when he thinks he's about to become autonomous, he's sold again. Um, he manages to kind of hold it together because he's, he's thinking critically about what's happening to him, and he's, he's got this kind of audience that's responding to him even though no one knows who he really is and can't really rescue him from this clearly illegal situation. And so I really liked... Um, I liked that about his character, and I also wanted to show that just because somebody grows up under these horrific circumstances, that doesn't mean that they don't have a, an ironic sense of humor about it. It doesn't mean that they don't have critical thoughts about it and that they can't uh, learn how to communicate with the wider world about what's wrong with their situation. And I didn't want him to just be a helpless victim. I wanted him to be figuring out at every turn how he could somehow turn this into something where he would either survive or at least leave behind a record of who he had been. And when we meet him, he's almost dead. And so he really hasn't, he, he really gets lucky that he runs into Jack um, in some ways. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, his, his arc in the novel is a little bit like 
paladins, um, but, you know, different also, very different in some ways. Uh, but he's learning about freedom uh, in the same way that paladin is. He, and I, he grows up out of freedom in a sense. I mean, he grows out of it. He, he outgrows it, his personality, his thoughts, uh, his, his inner programming, as it were. Yeah, I mean, he's, one of the things that I deal with a lot in this book is how we like, humans like to believe that the only creatures around them who can be programmed are robots, but in fact, humans are programmed by their circumstances. And 3Z is very much an example of that. You know, he's been exposed to uh, very harsh conditions, very authoritarian, and that's, you know, made him who he is. And he is, once he is free, to a certain extent he's free, he has to relearn what it means to relate to people. Because he, when we first meet him, he really only relates to people as potential slave owners. And he wants to manipulate them, and he wants to kind of figure out ways to uh, to relate to them the way he would have as a slave. And he has to learn how to be, how to not do that anymore and how to be a free person. I, I love the character Med. Uh, she was, you just have so much fun with, with her. Um, and so could you talk about, a little bit about uh, creating, I guess, uh, uh, a free robot, a free range robot? <laughs> So Med is, one of the things that's fun about Med is that she, she is a robot. Most people realize that she's a robot, even though she's what Battlestar Galactica would call a skin job. She's got mm. a human uh, skin all over her body, and she looks like a person, but she has this kind of uh, artificial endoskeleton. Maybe she's more like a Terminator. Like, mm-hmm. she's kind of a, uh, she's got, like, this metal endoskeleton. Um, and she... One of the things she deals with a lot is um, microaggressions because mm-hmm. she's not actually enslaved. So she's not dealing with the kind of macroaggressions, like really brutal upfront abuse. But uh, when she'll make she's she works as a scientist and she, she's a biologist. And when she will present her findings, colleagues will sometimes say, did you really come up with that? Or did someone just program you to think that? <laughs> and so she's dealing with these little ways that humans try to belittle her and treat her like a second-class citizen and kind of gaslight her and undermine her own understanding of what she's done. And she knows it's bullshit, and she's learned ways of coping with it. But um, I just had, I think that was, for me, the most fun was kind of thinking about how even if you have a robot in this society that's grown up free and has a human job, she's still going to be dealing with like weird blowback <laughs> from human prejudice against robots. And like that's the form the prejudice would take. And pretty much anyone who's ever worked uh, in a professional job uh, as a woman or a person of color will recognize those microaggressions. So it's, it's definitely based on things that happen in real life. I, I, <laughs> that's, a, that's a fascinating insight. Um, when you put together this book, did you know exactly what the plot was going to be? Or did you just launch yourself into this world and, and follow, follow, follow the, the trail? Mostly I did know. I, I outlined it. So oh, okay. I had um, a, a sense of what the arc would be. 
and that we would switch back and forth between Jack and Paladin. And um, but there were a lot of holes. And like, for example, uh, I didn't know that Paladin was going to have a romance. And that just kind of happened. Like I knew that Paladin that's, and Eli- I know it's that, weird, right? That, that's amazing to me because it's such a, a strong theme in the book. And the way it happens is just like so beautifully evoked. That like discovery. almost like a writer was discovering how yes, she was that, writing it. I mean, and of course, like. I rewrote the book extensively. Like mm-hmm. I did a first draft that was kind of garbage, and um, but had the skeleton of the plot. I mean, the plot basically stayed the same throughout all the revisions. But I did do a very heavy revision where, um, you know, I polished up the stuff about Paladin's feelings. I mean, initially, uh, Paladin really didn't have much of an interior life, and so that was a huge part of revision for me was was filling that in and and explaining that. But I always knew that. Um, Paladin's gender would switch in the middle of the book and that that would be kind of parallel with a couple of other things that switch over in the middle of the book. And um, so I had kind of planned that, uh, although not for the reason. So I had planned that, but I hadn't planned why. (laughs) Um, But I did know uh, where I wanted the book to wind up. And I always knew that the main theme in my head was the kind of clash between Jack's uh, radicalism around intellectual property mm-hmm. and then Paladin's experience of being property. And I knew I wanted to kind of contrast those two things. I love the moment in the book where Paladin says he's running a program that he doesn't have access to. And I just felt, boy, nobody has ever explained my own mind to me so well <laughs> as that. Uh, and I think that we're in an age where everything uh, is, I think, actually effectively compared to computer. You know, 100 years ago, everything was a steam engine. 200 years ago, it was a log camera or whatever. But now everything's a computer. But I think that that works really well for, in terms of uh, understanding human neuroscience. I learned a lot from this book by uh, witnessing uh, Paladin's evolution as a character. Yeah, one of the things about the robots in this book is that when they're indentured, they don't have root or admin access on their own minds. So they can't modify the programs that they're running. They can't see the programs that they're running. They can only experience them. So Paladin knows that some of the programs that he's running make him want to please his human master. And at the the same time, he doesn't, so he doesn't always know when he really likes a person and when he's kind of been programmed to like a person. And to me, as you said, like it felt very much like talking about what it's like to be a person who when you meet another person and you're kind of attracted to them and you think, wait, am I liking them because I thought they were cute? Do I really like them? Like what's going on here? Like, And you have to sort those things out. And it's really hard because we're running all these programs in our brains that we don't control that like Programs that control our desire, programs that control our fear, um, you know, all kinds of stuff that I would love to be able to modify. Like, I would super love root access on my own brain, (laughs) if only just to stop, like, craving Pop-Tarts at midnight. You know, (laughs) like, if I could just take that program out, that would be um, super helpful for me. (laughs) The new book by Annalie Newitz is autonomous, and she is, herself, is mostly autonomous. Thank you for joining me, Annalie. Thanks for having me.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.